You're listening to the Overeaters Anonymous Mid-Peninsula Podcast. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. For more information, please visit oamidpeninsula.org. Hi, everybody. My name is Merritt. I'm a bulimic and a gum addict. Very nice to be here. Um, I did say gum addict, um, in case you're wondering, I compulsively ate gum for years. This is even after I put the food down, I seems like I just like putting things in my mouth a lot. And even after I put the food down, it was just nice to always have gum. And I wasn't able to just stop just like I wasn't able to just stop with the food. And, um, I could be saying food in this exact same way, but I'll just say that, as an example of my gum thing. Oh, uh, incidentally, it was really funny. I was once in an elevator going to a meeting and someone said to someone else, there's this woman at the meeting who says she's a gamatic. What's a gamatic? It was as if it was some sort of a health condition. And of course that woman was me. And so I had to explain what it was, but I went on my honeymoon years ago now to Tahiti, Tahiti, like what, whatever you might think, how gorgeous, tropical, amazing Tahiti is. All I could think about was, where I was going to get enough gum because I was absent at the time, technically well, from food. Um, and so we drove around the islands, me and my new husband looking for gum and only one store had it. And I bought everything that they had as one course would. And, um, and then I gave it to him and I said, okay, keep this until we get to the airport because you're allowed to chew gum in an airport when you're on an airplane and it was sanctioned. And then I spent the rest of the honeymoon begging him to give me the gum so I could chew the gum so that I could have the gum because that's what I needed to have. And that could, I could easily fill in any sugary, flowery type of food item in that sentence and clearly define my disease. Let me just say, so um, it's just funny because this disease is like whack-a-mole, as we all know, and you put down one thing and another one pops up. So for me, it was this silly thing about gum. And I only identify myself that way because as a bulimic, it was um, a big deal when I first got here just to say out loud that I was bulimic. And uh, it's important for me not to keep secrets. And I don't know if anybody chews gum like I did, but sort of out myself that way has been really helpful for me. And um, as I shared earlier, I have a little over 32 years of abstinence in this program, which is so far beyond my wildest dreams. I don't even know what to say. Um, I like to say this though, my dad had this girlfriend at one time and she had a previous boyfriend who was a poet apparently. And he used to think it was absurd to just use the word sex casually in conversation because it's sex, right? It's like, oh my God. And that's exactly how I feel about my abstinence. So I just want to say that what I actually have is 32 years of abstinence because I could not go a day or an hour uh, without eating compulsively if my life depended on it. And the irony is I always thought, always thought every single time that I would never do it again. And I was bulimic for many years. Um, this disease, the, the level of denial is insane. Um, and 
it's also coming back and powerful as we talk about. And I was thinking about this this morning. So I was also raised, of course, it's very important to be thin. And also that the most important thing is how you look. And one example from my childhood is that my parents got divorced when I was seven. No, oh, seven, I think. And um, my mom used to try and sort of dress me up or something, make me, I want, she wanted me to look nice when I went out to dinner with my dad to prove that she was a good mom. And so um, I would go out and I'd get in the car and my dad would never say it looked nice. He would look at me and he'd be like, is that like, a, is that a pimple there on your face? What is that? And I was so set up to think that I had to look a certain way to be acceptable. And I, my, I would walk in and my mom would be waiting like, oh my God, what did he say? What did he say? And I would burst into tears every time because what he said was something about the small zit on my face that I hadn't even noticed rather than, you know, how great I looked or what a good mom she was or something like that. And um, whew, it's so painful even now as I think back on it. So um, anyway, what it was like, was awful. Um, for me, this disease was completely demoralizing. Um, no matter where I was, no matter what I was doing, if I had the thought enter my head, who knows from where, that it was a good idea to get some binge food. It was as if I was a remote control car and I just had to go. Like it was as if someone else took over and there I was on my way to the store. If the thing I had to have was too far away, I'd have to stop on the way to get something else to tie me over to get the thing. Um, and then I would have to get rid of it. And I always thought, as I said, that I would never do it again. And it might be a day, it might be an hour, it might be right after where there I was binging and purging again. Um, it was horrible and I wished I was dead, um, but I didn't have the bandwidth to kill myself. And I actually understand that people who are so depressed actually can't kill themselves. And it's when they start to feel a bit better that they can kill themselves. So I really, I had no hope uh, for a future. I never had any thoughts of like what I wanted to be when I grew up. I never thought I would get married or have a life. Um, I actually had a therapist. Well, so one of the things I tried was therapy as we do. And uh, my therapist said, I think you're just going to have to accept that you're going to do this the rest of your life. And so I pretty much expected that I was going to do it for the rest of my life. Um, I also uh, there was, I was in college at the time and there was this flyer that uh, advertised having your cake and eating it too. And it was for women with eating issues. And I was like, well, I want to do that. So I went to these meetings and one idea the woman had, for example, was um, we were all supposed to bring our favorite binge food to a meeting and then sit there and eat it in a relaxed way uh, with each other and make it be okay to eat that thing. And of course, being this disease, and I don't know what she had, but it was just a trigger to start binging my brains out as soon as I left. And as far as I know, nobody ever went to another meeting after that because it was such a waste of time. Um, so anyway, I tried therapy. I tried that. I tried not eating. I tried eating healthy. Uh, I have no idea what that means. I had no idea what that meant. It was just insane. Um, so what happened was I went to social work school and I decided that I was going to help addicts. And so meanwhile, actively bulimic. So I started working in a program for um, drug and alcohol addicts. I was their counselor. It was an inpatient 21 day program. And the shame was almost unbearable because these guys, it was almost only men, but some women 
the day they got there had more recovery than I did. And I was helping them get better. Uh, and there would be days when I would, at this hospital where I work, sneak into the gift shop and buy binge food and be eating during the day. Uh, and then, you know, purge on my way home, or I would stop and get food on the way home. It was kind of a long drive and I would binge and purge. And it was quite embarrassing for me and humiliating. Um, but the thing that stood out is that they were introduced to program. And at the time I had no idea there was an OA, but these guys would go to AA meetings and they would obviously come back floating on a cloud and talking about how much they loved it and how hopeful they were and how great it was. And I was like, God, I wish there was something like that for me. And um, it turned out almost all the women that worked at the program had eating disorders. And so um, I found out about Overeaters Anonymous. And even then, I wasn't sure it was right for me because I binged and purged. I didn't just overeat, um, but I became convinced that it would be okay for me to come here. So, um, and honestly, my therapist was sort of threatening me and threatening me with like antidepressants, which I was like, I don't need medication and threatening me with inpatient. Um, and I was like, I don't need that, which I totally did. Um, but anyway, I showed her and so I came to OA. And the attitude that I came with was that I'm here to get my therapist off my back. I'm fine. I can stop anytime I want. Um, when they say, take what you like and leave the rest, I was like, I don't really like any of this. I think I'll pretty much leave it where it is. And I might as well tell you that if you don't do anything that's suggested here, um, nothing changes. So uh, that's exactly what happened. And you might have noticed when I shared how long I've been abstinent that I didn't get abstinent right away. And the reason was because I, um, I didn't really do anything that was recommended in this program. So um, what finally happened is I was living in Michigan at the time, going to regular OA meetings, um, a, a group, there was like a breakout group because this woman from Boston who did gray sheet. And all of a sudden there was this idea that maybe if you ate gray sheet, you could get abstinent. So I started going to gray sheet meetings and I was like, oh, I think this could work. Um, you know, they talked about if you don't eat sugar and you don't eat flour, which is what alcohol is and what's addictive, then you can get abstinent. And it was clear that it would work. Um, and so what I did was I started doing gray sheet. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not funny. I started doing gray sheet and of course it works beautifully. Um, but the thing is that I was not done. And so if you'll follow my twisted logic and probably as other addicts, you will. Um, I was not abstinent, but I was embarrassed because I knew it would work. So I would binge and purge. And then this is my thinking, well, I'm lying, but I'll tell my sponsor tomorrow because I'm going to be absent tomorrow and then it'll just be one day and then I'll just tell her I lied and then everything will be okay. Well, just like you have here, there was a rule that once you have 30 days of abstinence, you have to start sponsoring. Well, don't think I stopped binging and purging because why would I do that? So I lied and lied and lied and lied and lied and then I sponsored and then I was at speaker meetings and I'm lying. And finally, six months went by and I still was binging and purging every day and I was still lying and I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Like this, if this is the last house on the block and I'm lying here, where am I going to go? And it just so happened I was visiting California and I went to an AA meeting because I didn't want anyone in OA to know I was lying as if these people had any idea who I was or even cared. And I said to this woman at the end of the meeting, like, oh my God, I've been lying about my recovery for six months. What am I going to do? And she was like, well, you have to tell the truth. And I was horrified because I was confident that um, 
Oh boy, I'm talking too long. I'll just finish this story real quick. I was confident that if I was admitting to my sponsor that I was an abstinent, she would lose her recovery. And if I told my therapist, she would probably have to close her practice because she thought she was helping me and she wasn't. And if I told my boyfriend at the time, like he would probably dump me or kill himself, like such grandiosity. So long story short, I did tell the truth. I did get abstinent. I had to play around a little more, but ultimately right around that time is when my abstinence began. And um, so I, um, the thing that I love, I loved about Gracie, I don't do it anymore, is that it gave me limits and boundaries around my food. And I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, I still weigh measure my food all the time. And I cannot think of an easier, softer way. I know when people come in, myself included, it sounds like a horror show to have to not eat certain things and only eat certain amounts of other things. But it is so freeing um, and such a gift that it was what I believe enabled me to begin my recovery. And I think for sure that we have to put limits and boundaries around our food and that the act of doing that actually helps us then start to set limits and boundaries with other people. Um, you know, when, when I had to show up and say, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I don't eat that, or I'm going to bring my own food, or I would bring my food to a restaurant, or I would have to say, I'm sorry, oh, someone's calling me. Um, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I can't go here. It's when I started to be able to have a, a structure around my life and around my food. And um, I feel like that was just the really solid place I needed to begin my recovery. And in regular OA, there's the idea of yellow light foods, right? So there's red, red light, can eat, green light, okay to eat, and then yellow light, which apparently means that it sometimes kind of works, but sometimes it doesn't kind of work. And I just think that is ridiculous. Um, so for me, if it's maybe going to sometimes sort of maybe work, I'm not trying that because I value my abstinence above all, and I just don't want to take any risk that I might lose it. Um, anyway, I've been here so long. I'm sure when I came in, I would have thought, what the hell is this person still here for? My God, I'm sure you're fine by now. I don't really know. Um, I know for sure that my best thinking got me here. And I can honestly say that it's my best thinking that keeps me here because even though I'm way better off than I was when I first got here, I have a crazy addict brain and I still come up with shit that's just like, well, that's dumb. And thankfully I have a program of recovery that teaches me how to live one day at a time and teaches me um, to turn things over, to run them by other people like my sponsor or program friends so that I can actually figure out something that makes sense rather than the first thing that crosses my mind. Um, <clears throat> I once saw a bumper sticker that said, um, if it ain't broke, we all know if it ain't broke, don't fix it. This thing said, if it ain't broke, fix it till it is. And I feel like that that's just like a perfect metaphor for my disease. If I can screw something up, you can guarantee that I'm going to do it. Um, and so I just need to keep coming back to this program so that I don't do that because I don't want to get in there and mess up and do things that aren't going to work for me. So um, have been, I've done service for years. Um, I am so indebted to my sponsor. I am a sponsor. I can't believe I have something that someone wants. I never thought that was going to happen in my life. Um, I've worked, I've done service at the intergroup level, at the meeting level. Um, and it's just absolutely true that, you know, service is slimming, but also I have learned things by doing service that I never thought that I would learn or that I would be capable of doing. Um, and as time goes by, I do more things that the program suggests rather than less. Um, I know when I came in, 
on the one hand, I was like, yeah, I don't need this. But on the other hand, I'm like, oh, my God, whatever I have to do, just tell me. And then, you know, we hear like, oh, make phone calls. Well, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to call anybody. And I mean, there's so many things that were like, eh, God, God, I don't think so. I don't really want to pray. Um, and as time has gone by, I'm more and more inclined to just do what the program says. And the more I do, the better my life gets. And it continues to get better all the time. Um, I, uh, so I sponsor, I pray, I meditate as best I can, and it doesn't happen all the time. I recently took a class because it just doesn't come naturally for me to meditate. And sometimes I do it still, and sometimes I don't. Um, I do have a food plan, which I'm incredibly grateful for. Uh, I um, go to meetings, of course, uh, all the things. I have a relationship with the higher power. Uh, one of my favorite prayers and the thing that I find makes it really easy to turn things over is that idea that um, if it's the right thing to do, make me want to do it more. And if it's not the right thing to do, make me want to do it less. Uh, for me, it's a really good way to turn things over. And inevitably, my desire to do something will get greater if I'm supposed to do the thing or it'll go away if I'm not, which just makes it really clear. Um, I kind of need to be beaten over the head with something before I get it, and I feel like that turning it over in that particular way really makes a difference. Um, let me see. Oh, my God, you can't imagine how many pages of notes I have here, you guys. Oh, I know. Um, I thought when I first came in that if I stopped being bulimic, then my life would be perfect and everything would be fine, just the way I know people think that if they get in, their life is going to be great. And I for sure feel like my life has gotten better. But what I've really learned over time is just that the recovery time is faster now than it used to be. So I still have really painful feelings, of course. I still have things come up that I really don't know how to handle, of course. And I seem to bounce back faster than I used to. So um, last year was really a painful year for me. Both my parents died. My dog died. I had to resign from my dream job um, for a very long story. And somehow I was able to be abstinent, which was just a miracle. Um, but in a way, even more so, you know how you can like somehow make it through Thanksgiving, but then the next day is really hard. You go to retreat and it's amazing. And then the drive home, you're like, oh my God, this year has been a little bit harder in some ways because the feelings have really hit. And um you know, the beauty of having been here so long is that I kind of have a muscle memory of what I'm supposed to do to take care of myself. And certainly throughout the pandemic, when life has just been so upside down and all over the place, the fact that this program provides good early direction um, has just been incredibly hopeful and meaningful to me. And uh, the morning that my dad died, I made my breakfast and then I got the call and of course, I was devastated. And I'm sitting there looking at this food and I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to eat this. And I'm like, Merritt, what do you do to take care of yourself every single day without exception? That's like, I eat whether I want to or not. If I'm sick or not, I eat the whole thing because that's abstinence and I know it and it makes sense and it makes my life work. And so I eat my fucking breakfast, even though my dad just died. And um, I'm so glad because I'm sure that later on in the day, had I not eaten that, that breakfast, I would have been like, oh, well, I can have a little more at lunch or maybe I'll have two dinners because I need breakfast. And I just can't afford to think things like that even now. I just know that this disease is cunning, baffling, powerful, and it will take me down if I don't stay vigilant. So um, anyway, I have a minute left, but I think I'm going to stop because I don't know what else to say. I have lots of stuff. Um, 
But I just, I do want to say, um, it's so lovely to be at a meeting where you all value your abstinence so much and share your recovery as you do. And it's very much an honor to be here. So thanks for listening. <clears throat>